You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Well, hello, everybody. Very nice to see you. Thank you for coming. I'm Eve Patton. I'm director of the Trinity Longroom Hub. And as you probably know, every year the Hub uh, has uh, pleased to host several visiting research fellows from right across the world uh, and uh, so that our community can get to know them, get to know a little bit more about their work. We run uh, fellow and focused conversations with a member of our own academic community uh, who has some degree of connection or expertise in their field. And uh, I'm really delighted to be introducing, I think this is the first fellow and focus conversation we've had of 2023. Um, and we're starting on a high with our visiting research fellow, uh, Shebnam Suzam Sareva, who's senior lecturer in translation studies at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And Shebnam is the author of many books right across the field, a, a theorized field of translation studies, um, and is also the author of several distinguished literary translations. Uh, she's at the Trinity Longroom Hub to work in the intersemiotic translation of cetacean languages and cultures in arts and music. Yes, you heard that right, cetacean languages. And I heard Shebnam introduce this topic recently at our Long Room Hub Coffee Morning. Uh, it is both fascinating and challenging, and particularly to traditional humanities and language scholars. Um, so I'm really keen to hear more about it today, and also to hear a little bit, Shebnam, about your route through uh, a scholarly career. Um, and very pleased to welcome back to the Trinity Long Room Hub uh, one of our very familiar faces, James Hadley. James, as you know, is director of the Centre for the Trinity Centre for Literary and Cultural Translation, uh, a specialist in many areas, including Japanese to English translation and also in human machine interaction within translation studies. So, James is going to be in conversation with Shabnam for uh, um, uh, half an hour or so, I suppose, and then we'll open up to questions and comments and thoughts from all of you. And I know that many people in this audience have an interest in this field. I'm so pleased to see uh, Nidhi Zak, who's our new uh, Rooney uh, Writer Fellow, who has a keen interest in this area. And Michael Cronin, uh, obviously, whose own work in this field and in translation studies more generally, ha has been so informative for all of us in this community. And to welcome all of you. And uh, there is coffee, there are some sandwiches, and I'll hand over now to James and Shevner. Thank you so much. So, uh, this is a little bit surreal, I find it, because, um, <laughs> because um, actually Shebnam and I have a connection that goes back several years, because Shebnam was my supervisor when I did my master's degree in translation studies, um, yeah, a few years ago, and then, <laughs> let's, let's just skip over the number of years. Um, and she was actually the person or one of the people that inspired me to continue and do translation studies as a PhD level. And then um, I, when I jumped into interactions with you, Shebnam, um, you were, I think you were working on uh, non-professional translators yeah. and also music. And I think there was something else in the mix as, at the same time as well. So um, one of the things that virtually everyone notices when they look at your profiles, the range of subjects that you cover. So could you give us a little bit of a, um, 
a rundown of how you how how that trajectory has actually worked and how you decide what's next. Right. Thank you, James. I'm, I'm glad that I was some sort of inspiration. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, you know, as they say, guilty as charged when I look back, when I was trying to put down some notes as well. I was like, oh, what on earth did I do over the years? <laughs> there was a cup, actually, I was planning to take some tea, and it says, dance first, think later. I think that's, that's the cup I grabbed from the kitchen. <laughs> Tell something about me. Uh, anyway, it all began, I think, I was, I was actually doing biology as my major, now that I think back on it, in the high school. Last minute, I fell in love with translation and decided on a career as a translator and interpreter, and I worked several years as a translator and interpreter until I realized that I'm not making enough money, I need a stable salary, and I like research, why don't I go into research? Uh, so that was that, and trying to find a topic of research, I was encouraged by my supervisors at the time, why don't you look at the translation of literary and cultural theories? Because in my mother tongue, Turkish, it's, it's a particularly, it, it had been a particularly uh, difficult area, how to find the right terms, how to find the discourse in literary and cultural theories. And I dived into it without realizing that you know, I know very little. And I was working on translations of Olam Bart into Turkish, and came along another case study, which I used as a counterpart, translations of Alain Sixteen into English. Uh, and I looked at things like retranslations, why are there retranslations in one case and none in the other, which introduced me, without me thinking so much about it, to French feminism, uh, which led me to teach on gender and translation for many years, and it's still an ongoing program, gender and translation, at the University of Edinburgh. Um, while I was doing the PhD, uh, there were questions. Translation studies, we keep saying, is a relatively young discipline. And methodology was there, but not, not exactly there. Things seemed to be a bit vague for PhD students at the time. So I started thinking about case study methodology and wrote an article on it. And then I also started thinking about um, the Eurocentric nature of translation studies. Uh, why languages like mine, Turkish, was expected to bring data, and why we were taking the theory from more kind of European-centered uh, centers. And I use the center-periphery dichotomy, which I'm not very happy with. But now looking back, and the reason I'm saying this, I know there are many PhD candidates here. Most of my work that had repercussions were not the ones I was doing research on. They were the ones I started thinking about. So probably my message is like, if something is bugging you, write about it. <laughs> uh, it, it you, you may never know what sort of reaction you will get, but chances are that it's bugging other people at the same time. And you will find an audience there that you didn't expect. Uh, once I finished the PhD, I think I was staying too much in the abstract, you know, cultural theories, literary theories, all fine. But then I wanted something a bit more down to earth, and uh, music has been part of my life for many, many years. I was in a choir for several years, and I started looking at where can we find translation in music. I mean, opera translation has been big in translation studies, but nobody was looking at popular music at the time. Uh, so I started working on popular music. Uh, especially within the context of uh, politics, 
my area was the Greek Turkish Rapprochement and how each side was translating their songs, appropriating their songs, translating the lyrics. Uh, and these were used for political and peace-building purposes. So that's what I focused on at this talk. And that gave me an opportunity to edit, to, you know, to go into editing. I learned how to edit, which is, which is a skill on its own. You were talking about that. Um, and I continued working on music, interlingual uh, translation of cover songs, how songs travel around the world. And it's still an area that kind of fascinates me as well as it's entertaining. I find it quite an interesting lens to look at society and to look at how translations function in society. Uh, then, in sometime around those years, I had my second child and uh, decided to go for doula training. I mentioned it briefly when I was introducing myself. Doulas are people who give um, physical and emotional support to parents throughout the pregnancy and during labor and birth, and quite often postnatal as well. And I have to say, I did that secretly. So for several years, I lived a kind of Jekyll and Hyde life. Because, <laughs> you know, I was a lecturer <laughs> during the day. And a couple of times during the year, overnight, I was disappearing into people's homes and hospitals, <laughs> supporting them during, during birth. I don't know why I was keeping it. It's just I couldn't, I couldn't put the two together. I couldn't put the academic hat and the doula hat together for several years. Um, then came a sabbatical where I had some time to collate and edit childbirth stories for Turkish readers. And that was quite a revelation for me, how little people knew about other aspects of childbirth, non-medicalized aspects of childbirth. And I did that secretly as well. <laughs> uh, then I said, you know, is enough, and I started writing about translation and childbirth at some point. So for the last 10 years or so, music and childbirth went hand in hand. So you could say, in a sense, it was mostly about experiential, corporeal aspects of life and how, how translation function in those aspects. Uh, then came the opportunity to edit a handbook for Routledge uh, on translation and health, which we ended up doing throughout the pandemic. It was quite an interesting coincidence for, for us. Uh, and I learned a lot throughout the process uh, from disability and gender to nutrition, we wrote up, you know, we had issues <coughs> from all around translation. Um, and I started thinking more about this representational aspects uh, of, you know, how do you, okay, to put it that way, who gives the right to represent whom? And I came up with this debate on the translation studies journal uh, where I started questioning this idea that, you know, you have to be of a certain gender, certain race, uh, certain background in order to be able to translate people from the same background. And that debate coincided with what is now referred to as the Rinnevelt gorman controversy. Um, I don't know whether you are familiar with it. Uh, the, the poet who was at Joe Biden's inauguration, the black uh, female poet in Holland, she was going to be translated by a non-binary white, very famous poet, <coughs> and there was a big outflow. Uh, and serendipity, that debate kind of attracted quite a lot of attention. Again, something I wasn't doing research on, but something that kind of kept me thinking about why, why we translate, who we represent, and is it ethical. Um, 
So the last year or so, I have been focusing on translating informed consent in maternal healthcare uh, with a colleague from Napier University in Edinburgh. And we've been talking a lot to midwives uh, who are on a day-to-day -day basis uh, talking to people from a variety of linguistic and cultural backgrounds. Uh, and interestingly, it's not so much the interpreters or the translators, but the midwives who give some thought to what happens in multicultural, multilingual environments in maternal healthcare. Uh, translators were less interested in it. Uh, I have my hypothesis as well. Anyway, uh, so I started doing lots of impact events with the midwives. Uh, which was interesting, and I'm hoping to continue on the front. Um, and from that came another debate about feminist interpreting studies. We have, in translation studies, those of you who are from translation studies will know that we have quite a strong tradition on feminist translation studies, but almost nothing on feminist interpreting studies. So I gathered colleagues who have been doing some work on that, and we organized a roundtable, and that got published just last month. And again, the response is really good. Uh, thousand readers in three weeks or something like that. Uh, so again, it, you know, be, my message is probably that be open, see what comes, and don't do things secretly, as I was trying to do. That's probably what I would say. Um, yeah, currently I'm working on this uh, station project as well as uh, trying to see how translation and narrative is used on climate emergency discourse. So two things are going in the center. Brilliant, thank you so much. Um, so, uh, so you, was it, was it always obvious that you would move into academia from your point of view, or was that just one of many choices? No. I, honestly, all my family comes from a salary background. That was the major. <laughs> I, I did it a monthly income. And I was good at the research I was doing in the undergraduate, and that was the main reason. Okay, brilliant. Very disappointing answer, I know. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, there's all sorts of, um, like every, every journey is unique, obviously. So, um, yeah, uh, brilliant. So, um, could you tell us then about your current project? So we've, we've heard about what's what's been around for a while and things that you've moved through, but um, I'm sure many people will be here yeah, wanting yeah. to know about cetacean translation. <laughs> Sorry about the digression. Um, well, the current project uh, started with, with a kind of conscious decision. I knew that I wanted to do something in relation to translation and the environment, and I had already tried my hand on writing a bit on ecofeminism and translation of folk music. Uh, and after that, an invitation came to participate in an uh, edited volume, and they asked me, can you write something about you know, music and translation, because that's the area I was known for. And I said, yes, but can I just tie it to environment somehow? And they said, yeah, of course, fine. If you find the data, just go ahead with it. When I came back to them and said, yeah, I want to work with dolphin and whale communication, <laughs> it was a bit of an interesting email exchange. Uh, I, I looked quite a lot. I looked actually at protest songs first, used for environmental uh, <coughs> purposes, and there wasn't enough, enough material there. And somehow, you know, when you do this, that internet search, when I was doing that internet search, I came across the, what is it referred to as the whale music. Uh, I am 
a big fan. I, I go for whale watching whenever I can. Scotland is a good place to do that. Uh, and I thought, well, is there, is there material there? And that seemed to be uh, what bugged me in that area was whale music was something very kind of mystified, aestheticized. It had nothing to do with the whales were actually going through. And I sort of approach music and art in, in my research at the moment as a kind of initial translation. I mean, we are nowhere near translating the station communication. There are lots of projects going on, like big projects like SETI, uh, which is about the station translation initiative focusing on experiments. But we are not in a position to translate their language. But music and art is in a position to mediate their language and culture. And the way they do this is, I think, extremely important for conservation purposes, for outreach purposes. And I wanted to see whether translation studies has anything to say um, in how to represent more ethically the languages and cultures of non-human animals. I think that's how it starts. Mm -hmm. It makes perfect sense to me. Um, but are you mainly aiming at translations, uh, translation studies audience, or is there a wider audience for this project? Um, no, I'm not aiming mainly at translation studies. I, I, I will really be glad if translation studies people turn up. <laughs> <laughs> I see today they did turn up, so I hope they will turn up for the 2nd of March event as well. Uh, the, mm, the audience is mixed. I don't think there's, I'm not prioritizing one over the other, but I really want to talk to marine biologists. And I've been trying this for the last one year or so, uh, often to not much avail, because when they receive an email coming from me, you know, I'm a senior lecturer in translation studies, they probably just delete it, because who knows about translation studies in the first place? Mm -hmm. uh, and from, from the scientist's point of view, they might just see, see it as a kind of spam email. But I did explain it to them. You know what I'm trying to do, um, but a couple of them did come back to me, and they were quite enthusiastic about any idea that will um, make their research more visible and more accessible. So, from what I understand, from the marine biologist's point of view, is that there's all, all this research going on, but it's not necessarily translating into action. It's not translating into policy making. It's not translating into outreach. And that's what they seem to need, and I'm hoping to kind of have further debates with them on how my discipline can maybe contribute to these things. Translation studies, as you know, Michael criticized uh, in several of his publications, is very lingua-centric. It has been focusing on human language for since its inception, basically. And there is more push at the moment to open its boundaries to the languages and communications of other species. But because we are kind of new to this, I would say that as translation studies scholars, we don't yet know how to, how to have these conversations necessarily with the scientists. And I just want to kind of start the discussion and see what comes out of that. So this is one group. The other group are obviously artists and musicians who are using um, recorded. Uh, whale songs, dolphin songs, and making things with them. Uh, some of them are quite interesting. Uh, they are trying to do things differently, so they are not buying into this uh, kind of aestheticizing myth of uh, Buddha of the deep, <laughs> as it's said. Um, so the 
from my point of view, the most successful efforts are those who focus on the materiality of the station's lives. Entanglement issues, if they can reflect it in their artistic endeavors, uh, noise pollution, um, those kind of direct impact on, on the whales and dolphins' lives, if they manage to kind of bring them to the discussion without alienating the audience, I think they tend to come up with successful installations, art projects, and so on. So this is the second group, and obviously translation studies scholars, because I want to push us out of our comfort zones. I mean, I can, for the rest of my life, focus on Turkish-English translations. That's how I started. Uh, but I mean, there are so many other people who will do that anyway. Uh, so that's the third group. Good <laughs> And um, so, in your ideal outcome world, like the, the ideal, if you imagine what you would love to see this project result in, mm -hmm. what would that what would that look like? Okay. Um, well, hopefully, the editors will not reject it. <laughs> I don't. I don't think they will. We have a good relationship. Uh, so yeah, the publication will be out. Uh, I would like that to be read by these three groups if possible, though I suspect it would still be mostly translation studies scholars, which is fine. Uh, I mean, the more we write about these, uh, just a couple of people in translation studies writing on biosemiosis, writing about uh, interspecies communication, I think more our discipline will be comfortable yeah. hearing this. So that will be a very good outcome. Mm. Uh, personally, uh, my wildest dream is to spend a couple of weeks in a Bioacoustics Research Center. <laughs> uh, and uh, Leverhulme at the moment offers uh, grants for what they call discipline hopping. Uh, so for people working in, let's say, humanities, if they want to go and do something somewhere else, I'm, I'm, I'm planning to apply for that, but, you know, yeah. blue sky thing. <laughs> well, why not? Thank you. And, um, <clears throat> um, so, I have here on my notes um, that you'd, you'd mentioned that you have a story about a humpback whale in the Firth of Forth. Yes. And that's all I have. So <laughs> could you expand on that? <laughs> no, it's just, uh, it's all, I think this is something that happened uh, last year and I thought I can just give you an extract of it. This is probably how I will start the text anyway when I'm writing the article. Uh, so I will just read that one. Okay. But for that I need my glasses because I don't see anything anymore. Um, I, think it, I think it's just a good example of how people react to the whales and dolphins and how far removed we are uh, from actually being able to listen to them, so to speak. So here it goes. Uh, on January the 1st, 2022, so more than a year ago now, a humpback whale feeding for more than a month in the Firth of Forth by the Scottish capital, was finally observed breaching, and no less than 50 breaches over two hours. If you are familiar with humpback whales, if you are lucky, you know, if you are lucky, you see them breaching maybe up to 10 times. 50 is quite rare. For many observers, this was a celebration of the New Year's Day, especially after two long and difficult years of the pandemic. So everybody was going, yay, we didn't know that it, that it could still go on and on. 
Um, others more experienced in whale watching, however, expressed concerns about this cheerful narrative. Close-up photos shared on citizen science media the same day showed fresh scars on the whale's back, indicating a recent entanglement in fishing gear. Two days later, on the 3rd of January, a debate was initiated on the 4th Marine Mammals Facebook group, which I'm my part of, questioning to what extent the observers were projecting their own emotions on the whale's behaviour. While it was easy, and certainly more palatable, to interpret the behaviour as joyful performance, uh, here's a quote, I think it was showing off and giving us a good show before it goes, because the whale wasn't seen after this date. That was the last day, after a whole month, that was the breaching, and then it was gone. Or it was seen as a farewell gesture. Another quote, a massive thank you for a full tummy. I'm off to find somewhere else to play. Or to explain it through scientific hypotheses, such as removing parasites after a month of feeding, signaling to distant humpbacks that these waters can be dangerous. There was still a nagging suspicion that the whale was either trying to free itself from any remaining nets, or was so traumatized from the entanglement that it was displaying signs of distress. Whether the whale was perceived as rejoicing after its freedom, or as expressing a flight response, the reactions in the discussion demonstrated various forms of obvious anthropomorphizing, with human emotions and accompanying bodily reactions projected onto a fellow creature. I mean, most humans jump if we are scared or if we are happy. So we assume other, others would do the same. Uh, this is obviously a common conundrum in, uh, for instance, nature-based documentaries, where most of the attention is traditionally focused on hunting, mating, or parenting. That is, behaviors we can relate to. <coughs> what interests me most in this discussion, however, is the way people derive pleasure out of a 30-ton giant leaping out of the ocean, regardless of the reasons underlying this behavior. So, the, the whale watchers didn't need to exactly know why it was happening, what was happening. And as an avid whale watcher, I'm familiar with this feeling of awe and um, elation that accompany any, any breaching event. Uh, after all, it is these feelings that contributed to the conservation of whales, turning most local whaling industries into whale watching ones by the end of the 20th century. It is mainly through aestheticizing and mystifying that we have managed to let these animals live, not through, not through fully perceiving their material existence in the more than human world we share with them. Mm. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, it will take me a little while to absorb uh, that story. It's not what I was expecting. Um, so while I do, can I ask, do you already have a plan for after this current project? Do you already have something that's emerging as the next thing on your radar? Um, no. No? <laughs> I want to breathe. I mean, this, this sabbatical, I'm finishing two articles in over six months, so I want to breathe a bit over the summer. But with colleagues in Germany, they are training, uh, so it has nothing to do with this project yet. <coughs> Uh, they are training student doctors and student midwives together with student interpreters, so we are looking for a <coughs> core project. That might be one. Uh, I don't know how this project yet will blossom into something else. I'm not sure yet. Mm. But I, I know it will, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could go anywhere, really, couldn't it? I mean, there's no reason to stop at cetaceans. I, I mean, 
because I'm jumping from topic to topic, I want to stay with stations for a while because I realize I have taken like 40,000 words notes, which needs to turn into 7,000 words. <laughs> Uh, so the rest of the 33,000 should find a home somewhere. Mm. Thank you. Interesting. Thanks again.